0: Welcome to Canada's Podcast. Hello, I'm Mario Tanaguzzi, and this is Canada's Podcast. Decarbonization is a word we hear about quite often these days, but what exactly is it? And what does it mean in reducing our carbon footprint? What are some of the decarbonization solutions that entrepreneurs can consider as they build and grow their businesses? Now, more than ever, there are expectations for companies to integrate carbon-conscious decisions into operations. But just how do they do that? Joining me today is Dr. Jamie Steven, managing director of Torchlight BioResources, a decarbonization strategy and policy advisor for governments, first Nations, utilities, among others. Dr. Stephen will share his insights on building with wood thermal energy, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, and how the forestry sector can support the most effective decarbonization efforts that businesses can adopt. Thanks for joining us,
1: Dr. Stephen. Thank you for having me, Mario. I've really been looking forward to our conversation.
0: Me too. Let's talk first of all about uh, Torchlight uh, Bioresources and what you do. What's the company's purpose and mission?
1: Well, we're a strategy advisor. Uh, as you mentioned, we, we provide our clients include governments, large emitters, uh, airlines, um, and anyone that is a, a large carbon emitter, a large greenhouse gas emitter. And really what we do is we use a lot of uh, knowledge on technology um, and biological resources to provide solutions and recommendations to our clients. Really, a lot of this, this strategy is very technology informed. Um, and re- and we work at the interface of the energy, forestry, and agricultural sectors um, to provide those solutions. Mm,
0: okay, then uh, tell me about the history of Torchlight. When did it start and and
1: why did it start? So we were founded in, in 2009. Um, I've actually been working in this space in the bioenergy biological resources space for almost 20 years now, since 2003. I decided to go back to graduate school in in 2005, 2006, and as I was doing uh, my master's and PhD, realized there was really an opportunity to take that information uh, that we were generating, that, those learnings, and to provide a service to to clients. Um, so that one of our largest projects actually started off with the national government um, in Southeast Asia providing them guidance on their national energy strategy, and how they could transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to one uh, that's lower carbon and dependent upon um, local resources.
0: Hmm. Okay then, so we hear a lot about uh, decarbonization you know, quite often these days. Uh, can you explain to our viewers what that actually means? It, you know, It's kind of like one of those words that is out there all the time, used by everybody all the time, all the time. But I think the average person out there may may not totally understand what we're talking about here.
1: That's absolutely true. This is a fairly technical space and a lot of terms are, are thrown around your carbon footprint, etc. So yeah. decarbonization is really about uh, the simplest form of reduction of carbon. So this means less drink greenhouse gases in the atmosphere than would otherwise be the case. So that mean, can include reducing the amount of emissions that we are that we are generating but also it can include uh, reducing emissions from the atmosphere um, and actually bringing those concentrations down so that's what we mean by by decarbonization
0: okay super and, and so why is it important that uh, you know us as a planet uh, embarks down this road of, of decarbonization
1: well obviously climate change is front and center in terms of uh, people's thinking and companies' thinking nowadays, and, and a lot of that is really about the societal and economic impacts of a changing climate. Um, you know, it's it's uh, there are inherently always trade-offs in all these decisions. There's some decarbonization approaches, some ways to reduce emissions that are very expensive and will have very significant economic implications, and then there's others that are more affordable, and there's always a trade-off. But overall we know that that there is a change in climate and that in general throughout the world, this will have negative implications for the stability of our society. Mm -hmm. I would add that, you know, a lot of a lot of the discussion is um, that the world as a whole uh, will be um, significantly negatively impacted. And we will see absolutely transitions and changes in biological systems, whether that's wildfires, or droughts or that type of thing, what I would particularly uh, encourage your your listeners to think about is the implications for humans and societies and the mm-hmm. stability of those societies. There's a lot of projections in terms of climate change um where the the world as a whole will be fine, but humans will go through a very difficult period.
0: yeah, exactly. So why is it important that entrepreneurs uh, especially and business owners, uh, those in uh, in the business world, consider decarbonization solutions as they build and and as they grow their uh, businesses?
1: Well, I think it's important to recognize how society is valuing uh, decarbonization and ESG performance. So this is environmental, social, and governance. And so this has implications for the brand values that, that companies have. Um, Also, you know, so that is obviously reflected in your products and and your customers and what they think about your company, but it's also about your, 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 uh, excuse me, your employees and your company culture. Uh, If you show in a commitment um, to essentially lead to a better world that actually um, will have significant benefits for your company and and uh, the desire to of employees to stay with your company also to attract um, you know excellent human resources.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Jamie, how can the forestry sector uh, support decarbonization efforts uh, that businesses can adopt? and uh, how important are forestry products in in the whole uh, decarbonization initiative? Well,
1: I work in this space because I, I firmly believe that it's actually the forestry sector that is the most important, um, particularly in Canada, when we talk about decarbonization and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the forestry sector has an oversized influence in terms of its ability to provide renewable materials and renewable energy and decarbonization solutions to other sectors. Yeah. Um, to give you an example, You know, you're you're um, in a building that's likely that building likely has a lot of wood in it Um, that is stored carbon. And so people have to recognize that when we are using wood products, we're actually taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it for a really long time. So that's one of the key things that the forestry sector can deliver is that carbon removal. There's a number. Also, the forestry sector is a provider of renewable energy. Uh, So this is the form of electricity that people tend to think about. But really, the the big component is is in heat. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so heat is actually two thirds of Canada's energy consumption. We spend a lot of time talking about electricity, but that's only 16 percent of Canada's energy consumption. So it's really about heat. Um, and so those two things are are really the pillars that the forestry sector can provide. So the solid wood, the carbon storage, and then that thermal energy.
0: So you know, let's talk about some key uh, efforts that that uh, are out there and and can be uh, undertaken. And obviously, we're talking here a little bit about building with wood, for example. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Uh, you know. Uh, for example, I, I see quite a lot of uh you know uh things like uh you know build, buildings with like mass timber or, or or wood frame uh you know uh uh especially uh, say apartment buildings especially uh so can you explain a little bit more about why building with wood is a good example of some of the efforts they can go
1: go with Absolutely and so uh, mass timber has received a, a lot of attention, and and for and for good reason. Um, it's dramatically lower in terms of its what's called its embodied carbon. So this is how much carbon, how many greenhouse gas emissions were released in built building that building. That includes all the materials. That includes uh, you know on site emissions, all that type of stuff. And so uh, we are with mass timber. We're actually able to increase the market share for uh, wood products in the building sector which is obviously there's been a focus on single-family detached homes you know um, lumber etc and that's that's wood dominates that that uh, low-rise residential market with yeah. mass timber we're able to shift into multi-unit residential buildings into commercial buildings um, and in doing so if you shift from a steel or cement heavy building into one made of wood, you've dramatically reduced the carbon footprint or the embodied emissions of that building. And it continues to store that carbon in that wood over time. Wood is about 50% carbon. So if you think about it from that perspective, if you have a building that's 200, 300, 400 years old, that's carbon that was taken out of the atmosphere and stored for many centuries, and where that tree used to be, several other trees have grown, been harvested, and that's why it's such a renewable and sustainable resource for building.
0: All right. And can you explain uh, in, in in regards to this building, with what? can you explain what the Canada Green Building Council net zero carbon uh, building standard is? It's a, <laughs> a tongue twister <laughs> yeah. there, but uh, can you explain what that is?
1: Absolutely. So a lot of developers now are, are really trying to um attain what even goes beyond what people know as lead so this is a yeah. performance standard um to have net zero buildings and there's really two components to that um one is the embodied carbon so this is the carbon that was uh, emitted producing the products to build the building whether that's steel cement or other you know plastics all that type of thing yeah. um and then and then there's the operational side of things and so the forest product sector can can play a critical role in both these. Um, one is in that embodied carbon. And so for the Canada Green Building Council, they've got a standard whereby new developer or developers of buildings can go and get this certification. So that show that they are uh, providing leadership and basically making their buildings more attractive to potential tenants. Mm-hmm. And the other is in the operation of the building. And again, this is where bioheat and the use of wood fuels has a critical role to play. I would note that they're actually very closely linked because when you produce lumber or mass timber or anything like that, you are taking a tree um, that and and when you're producing that solid wood product, a lot of residues are created. Hmm. So, you know, we, we have a cylindrical tree, there's tops, there's branches, all these types of things. And you're producing rectangular lumber or mass timber that inherently produces a lot of residues, which can be used to displace fossil fuels in the operation of those buildings.
0: And can you talk a little bit about the costs uh, involved in, uh, in building with wood compared to the building in other ways?
1: Absolutely. So we know that, you know, for a single family detached home, wood is the way to go. Without a doubt, that's the most affordable. I would say there's an opportunity in Canada to do more prefabrication. Uh, for instance, if you go to Sweden, you know, over 90% of the buildings are prefabricated in a factory and that can actually lead to more affordable housing. So that is a, a great opportunity. But and we know that wood dominates that single family, um, you know, townhome type of market. When it, when we talk about higher rise buildings, um, there's a, a key factor here is the lower uh, or is is the reduced labor requirements when you're building with mass timber? because they're all prefabricated panels. And there's been a recent McKinsey study that shows that Canada is actually the top in terms of the labor contribution to cost of building. Um, and that is because we don't use a lot of pe- we don't use a lot of prefabrication. Obviously, we have a difficult building climate in the winter. yeah, um, and so, that's, you know, in order, in order for us to get more affordable buildings, we need more prefabrication and wood when we're producing, whether it's mass wood panels, so something called cross laminated timber or glue glulam, which are essentially the, the posts, if you will, support beams, um, those can all be prefabricated rather than done with labor on site. And so that has labor cost savings, but it also has speed of development, speed of construction savings. Um, which are critical as well uh, for, for, you know, your, your capital, et cetera.
0: Oh, yeah, capital. One last question uh, regarding building with wood. And uh, I, I'm just curious, of uh, what are the other some of the other benefits uh, of building with wood, uh, uh, you know, beyond sort of the decarbonization aspect of it?
1: Well, it's beautiful. I mean, it been, <laughs> it actually, there's been many studies that have shown that it makes people feel better when they are looking at wood. And so uh, it, whether it's employees or or customers that are coming to your place of business, mm-hmm. it uh, inherently, as humans, we feel better when we are looking at wood compared to hard uh, surfaces. And so it's more welcoming and it creates um, and, and basically better well-being, if you will, of your employees and customers. so i would I would encourage everybody out there who has, <laughs> Uh, you know, has their own building or they're a tenant to really consider how much wood you can use in your building um, to create an atmosphere that is welcoming to to humans and makes them feel, if you will, at home and and, and in comfort.
0: All right, super. Let's move on to uh, another effort that can be used out in decarbonization, and uh, we're talking about thermal energy. First of all, can you explain a little bit about what thermal energy is? and how it can be
1: used. So thermal energy is kind of the the technical term for heat. Uh, And so heat is really, if we want to talk about decarbonization and energy systems in Canada, we have to talk about heat because it's two thirds of Canada's energy consumption. We Hmm. spend all this time speaking about electricity, which is really important, but it's only 16% of our energy consumption. What about the other 84%? And so we know that electricity is going to be an important contributor to decarbonization, but you can't go from 16% to 100% on electricity. And so, thermal energy, and so this is really uh, two main sectors this is buildings, heating buildings, mm-hmm. um, and in industry. So, a typical home, 80% of the energy consumed by a typical home is heat. So, that's space heating and hot water. Uh, and then when we look at the industrial sector, it really depends on the type of industry. But on average, 80 to 85% of the energy consumed by industry is in the form of heat. And so the, not all of that is going to be electrified. And so the forest product sector using low-grade materials, materials that can't be turned into that high-grade solid wood products, using that material for for either process heat in industry or in space heating is really the solution to decarbonization. And we see that in Europe, for example, if you look at Europe and obviously it has been a leader in wind power and solar power, Mm. but 60% of the renewable energy in Europe is bioenergy. And most of that is in the form of heat. Canada is actually one of the only, and one of the things to consider in Canada is the differences between The provinces. So in quite a few provinces, bioenergy dominates the amount of renewable energy. Um, That's not necessarily true in Quebec. It's not true in Manitoba. It's not true in British Columbia because they have very, very large hydropower resources relative to their population. Hmm. However, all the other provinces, bioenergy is really the dominant form of renewable energy. And that's important to recognize when we talk about decarbonization and the energy transition.
0: Are there eventual savings uh, in adopting this?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, when you talk about what can be competitive with uh, whether it's natural gas or whether, you know, I live on the East Coast, so a lot of heating oil is still consumed here, or propane, um, or in some cases, coal, biomass and low grade wood materials can be used as a direct replacement in a lot of those applications. Oftentimes, you do need different infrastructure, for example, a a way of distributing heat that's quite prevalent in Europe and is growing rapidly in Canada is called the district heating system or district energy system. And for instance, downtown Toronto is heated with a district energy system, downtown Vancouver, a lot of university campuses. And this is essentially hot water pipes that connect multiple buildings to a central heating plant because yeah. we're not going to be delivering wood chips to every skyscraper in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver or Montreal, but we can have a central plant and use that central plant to provide heat to hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of buildings. And mm. this is how c- cities like Stockholm, Copenhagen, et cetera, our, uh, other Nordic cities, um, are heating all their buildings from central biomass heating plants. And this, this has two benefits. One is obviously decarbonization. And these, these cities, Copenhagen and Stockholm are leading the world in decarbonization because of their wood-fired downtown um, heat plants. But also it provides a market for this low-grade material that allows us to manage our forests better. And it allows us to manage our forests so that we're reducing wildfire risk and we are reducing pest infestations and allowing for more sustainable, healthy forests.
0: So what are governments saying about uh, uh, this area and this thermal energy and its potential?
1: Well, it's it's absolutely a key topic in terms of how are we going to decarbonize. It is the biggest challenge in, in Canada in terms of decarbonization because We know that electric vehicles are are rapidly growing in the transportation sector emissions, particularly in light duty are gonna be decreasing. And Canada really varies from from province to province, but on average has a pretty low carbon intensity electricity grid. So really decarbonization in Canada is really about thermal energy. It's about decarbonizing industry, industrial heat, and it's about decarbonizing uh, building heat. And so, the government of Canada has supported many projects of fuel switching to, to biomass, um, and it, and um, and then it's really quite complementary to other decarbonization options. You know, wind, solar. As we all know, when it's not sunny, it's not windy. You need yeah. energy, and that's really where biomass has a real strength and real complementarity to those other resources, because. It is dispatchable. That means you can turn it on when you need it. Um, because really, what is what is wood? What is you know what is biomass? It is stored solar energy. Um, it is a battery unto itself. And yeah. so that's really uh, a critical component. Obviously, we've seen a heard a lot about from the federal government and other go- governments about improving forest management, increasing the number of trees through planting, which are important, which are important. But I would also point out that Canada already has 318 billion trees Mm. and that we have about 8,500 trees per person in Canada. And we need need to place our focus on better managing those forest resources Mm. uh, in a changing climate. And that will be by far the largest impact that we can have globally from a climate perspective.
0: Okay, and and uh, one last thing on, on the thermal energy front. Uh, are there incentives out there for businesses to undertake these types of initiatives?
1: There there are, and really a lot of it depends upon the province. Um, for instance, there's something called the Investing in Canada Infrastructure Program. So this is a infrastructure-based program that supports, um, there's a green stream in there uh, that allows uh provinces to decide how they want to uh, decarbonize and to reduce emissions. And then the federal and provincial governments provide funding. Some of that goes to municipalities, some of it goes to not-for-profits, and some of it can go to to business. Hmm. Um, There is also, if you want to look at an an example for um, Prince Edward Island, as an example, they're they're kind of national leaders, if you will, in in bioheat, in this thermal energy. And and if you're in Prince Edward Island, pretty much every school or hospital outside of Charlottetown is heated with wood chips. They've switched fuel, switched those facilities from heating oil to wood chips. Um, And they've they've worked with the private sector to be able to do this, because as a provincial government, as a building owner, they didn't really want to operate a bunch of wood chip heating plants. And so they got. They basically said, "We want to buy heat. Please, private sector, you'll give us proposals. we'll We'll commit to buy it for twenty years. We know that this school will be in here in twenty years and we need twenty years of heat. We will buy that heat. Private sector, you can finance, develop, operate, and maintain these facilities and sell us heat. So it's it, th- there's different models of how to do it. Um, but certainly any building owner could look at that type of a model, that heat as a service model. Um, but oftentimes building owners also have to work with their municipalities and figure out how can we work together to potentially, if I'm in an urban area, develop a district energy system? How can we encourage that within our community? Jamie,
0: let's talk a little bit about uh, bioenergy, carbon capture, and storage. What is that and and how, is this important in reducing the carbon footprint?
1: So maybe I'll break it into those two components. The first is bioenergy. So this is what we've already been talking about. This is turning biomass, whether it's from forestry or agriculture or even waste into energy um, and, and utilizing that for industry or for or for buildings. The other is carbon capture and storage. And this is basically capturing the carbon dioxide emissions that are produced when you combust the fuel, when you burn a fuel and putting them underground permanently. So storing that carbon dioxide underground. Mm -hmm. And so Canada already has several carbon capture and storage projects. There's one in Saskatchewan and there's two in Alberta. And these ones are all based upon fossil fuel CO2 emissions. So they're burning fossil fuels, whether it's coal in Saskatchewan or natural gas in, in Alberta and putting that underground, thereby reducing the emissions from those facilities. But if you combine the two, bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, what you're ta- essentially, if you step back and think about it, is a tree is growing by, by taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, right? So it's growing, it's reducing the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere by growing and storing that in the form of wood. And then if we use that for energy, we're, gener- we're releasing that CO2. But if instead of it going to the atmosphere, we put it underground, we've actually taken carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it back in the ground permanently. So this is the primary way of actually reducing emissions in the atmosphere that are already there. And so this is what we call negative emissions or permanent removals.
0: So who's adopting this?
1: So there's a number of countries in Europe that are pursuing uh, BEX, which is Bioenergy Carbon Capture and Storage. Uh, Actually, one of them is is using wood from Canada in the form of wood pellets supplied to a power plant in the United Kingdom. Mm. um, And they are planning to add carbon capture and storage to this existing bioenergy plant. And the this I just want to put it in terms of the, the scale. So this one plant in the UK would have negative emissions. So permanent atmospheric removals of 12 million tons per year. So this is on the same order of magnitude at a single plant in the UK using Canadian wood pellets as all the emissions of New Brunswick. So you're, you're these are removals from the atmosphere. Um, that are reducing emissions globally using Canadian wood pellets. And I will have I, what I can say is that there are there is great interest in Canada in pursuing BECS. We have very attractive geology in Alberta and in Saskatchewan, and this is really relevant for a lot of your listeners because as you look to try to decar- as they look to try to decarbonize their operations. One of the ways to do that is to try to, if you can't do something internally, is to buy removals, right? Buy these offsets. But these are not offsets of I planted a tree or I, you know, I, I did a different practice. Um, these are actually permanent removals from the atmosphere. And so this is important for not only um, smaller companies, but also corporate buyers who have limited options for decarbonization. Think about things like airlines. Yeah, um, it's very expensive for them to fuel switch, and they have very limited options. So, permanent removals is a way for them to reduce their emissions in an affordable way, and to continue to provide the services that we all depend upon.
0: When it comes to decarbonization, uh, you know what are businesses currently looking at when it comes to uh, government policies and uh, regulations.
1: So obviously, one of the the things that is really front and center for a lot of businesses is what is my energy prices. and And we know that the carbon levy, and it's implemented slightly different in different provinces, but that is impacting um, c- companies and how much their energy costs. and in you know in a way, via the market, encouraging them to try to fuel switch. Um, that is really front and center. Some of the larger emitters, they are subject to a whole host of other regulations which they have to work through over time. Um, For instance, there's a kind of an emissions trading scheme. There is something called the Clean Fuel Regulations, which applies to transportation fuels that will also impact the price of fuels for consumers. So, I think for most of your listeners, it's going to be a you know it's going to be show up most in terms of the cost of fuels. And this is why we're really focused on a lot of thermal energy and a lot of bioheat options, because when you are doing bioheat, you don't have to pay that carbon levy. Mm. Right? And so, uh, for instance, $170 a ton, which is what we anticipate the carbon price to be in Canada by 2030. Some of your listeners might be very surprised to know that that is essentially a doubling of the natural gas price in Ontario. Um, it's more than a doubling of the natural gas price at a residential level in in uh, in Alberta and in Saskatchewan. So it'll have a profound impact on people's energy consumption and what types of energy they want to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, while there will be some electrification, really, if you want the same performance um, and the same cost competitiveness, it's important to consider looking at at biomass, whether that's wood pellets or wood chips. Those are really the dominant fuels in this space.
0: Is there a sense of urgency right now in all of this, uh, Jamie? And, and and how do you respond uh, to those, I guess, naysayers and out there that that don't believe uh, we have a crisis on our hands when it comes to climate?
1: Well, I think I think it's about this is a this is a very very um, Large challenge. It is something that is not going to happen overnight. Uh, I I actually get a little concerned when we when people start talking about climate emergencies because it means that they're having a hard time fully understanding the energy system. It is going to take decades and decades to transition the energy system away from fossil fuels, and we have to do so in a way that recognizes the affordability of energy, the importance of energy to our lives. And that we need reliable and dispatchable energy um, to meet our needs. Mm. These are just fundamental things, and I don't think you know when, when you when you don't have enough energy, you're not going to be you, people people need to heat their homes, they need to get to work. and so we have to be recognized, you know cognizant of that and to recognize that solutions have to be realistic. Mm. So it has to be something. Um, that also the responsibility doesn't just fall on the shoulders of individual consumers. This is, you know, we do a lot of work for the federal and provincial governments. We also do a lot of work with municipalities. And really, a lot of it has to do with the governments getting infrastructure in place that allows people to transition rather than saying, hey, we're, you know, we're going to increase the price of carbon and we're going to put that on your shoulders there is a responsibility that if the government obviously put in place by the voters, but if they have not only say, we don't want this, they also have to enable a solution that is realistic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think has been lacking quite a lot um, in a lot of the climate change discourse in Canada. So for instance, you know why is it that municipalities aren't developing district heating systems so that all building owners can connect? Why is it we are putting the responsibility on building owners and residents and um and homeowners to figure out the carbon equation themselves? That's a very difficult thing to do. There's mm-hmm. different carbon intensities and it and it is quite a a uh, numbers game, a complex game, and it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It is not simple, and this is where um, your your listeners can really try to encourage their local municipalities to take some leadership to provide those solutions instead of just saying, "Well, you need to decarbonize homeowners or building owners." Yeah, and to put in those that infrastructure in place to allow them to decarbonize. Right. Really? It's like saying. It's like saying. Well, we want everybody to have an electric vehicle, but without having any charging station.
0: yeah, what about consumers? Like uh, how are they responding to this? and that? are they willing to uh, to pay uh, the little extra that, that may be out there in and in, in helping everybody reduce the carbon footprint?
1: I think it's you know everybody has their own day to day concerns, and I think everybody wants to do the if quote unquote, the right right thing. Yeah. But it does, you know, there's certain choices that, that people can make individually, but then there are other things that we as a society and, as, and governments need to do to enable this transition. And so, you know, I encourage people to use wood products whenever possible um, to build with wood and to consider the role that, you know, particularly if you're in a, in a more rural area, the wood, role that wood can play in heating your home, for example. Um, in in heating your commercial building, um, you know, things like wood pellets, fuel switching to wood pellets, or even if you're building a new home, focusing on a wood pellet boiler um, instead of going with propane or heating oil, um, those are those are some solutions that the individual uh, consumer can take. Um, and and really, you know, saying okay, well maybe I, instead of uh, you know, I want to focus on the carbon footprint of my my home etc. And, and the forest product sector is really well positioned to provide the, those solid wood products for building with, um, for utilizing biological based materials um, and products, you know, obviously, we're seeing things like, you know, straws, etc, produced from paper, um, and quite frankly, being supportive and trying to understand the role of the forestry sector. We do see the forestry sector demonized a lot, um, unnecessarily. Uh, I would, I, and and so it's really critical to understand that that Canada is a world leader in sustainable forest management. Almost forty percent of the world's certified sustainable forests are lo, are in Canada, and um, it is also our primary responsibility. But it also means that protection of forests, if you will, just leaving them alone, isn't going to work. We have to recognize that Canada does have a very small percentage of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world, and that but our forests are going to be subject to all the emissions in the world, whether they come from China or the US or, or any other country, and that we are going to see significant disturbance in our forests, if particularly if we don't do anything about it. and so. Actively managing those forests, trying to um, adapt them to a changing climate actually means harvesting some timber, and it means using more wood products to provide a market for that low-grade material that's at extreme fire risk. So this has things implications for air quality with wildfires, um, and you know, simply the, the, the vitality of our ecosystems actually depends upon the forestry sector harvesting timber.
0: And Jamie, I want to talk a a little bit about uh, entrepreneurs and the role they have in in reducing the carbon footprint, but especially from the angle of, uh, you know, if you're small, uh, maybe have limited resources, uh, how do you as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, uh, go about, uh, you know, uh, doing the right thing in in, in the sense of contributing to this, uh, this effort?
1: So I, I think there's, there's things that you as an entrepreneur that you can do within your own business in terms of procuring with wood. So if, as we've talked about, if, you, if, you're, if you're designing a new office, you can really say, okay, wood first. We want to really emphasize how much wood is included in this. We know that that's storing carbon. We're proud of having wood floors, of wood countertops, of wood cabinets, because we know that we've taken carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere by buying this product. So that's the first thing. I would also say, encourage a lot of people to really try to understand the forest product sector. Um, It's, you know, we we have a lot of um, rhetoric within our society about never cutting down a tree, but let's look around us. We are living in wood houses. We are using toilet paper. We are writing on paper. And I think it's important that people don't feel guilty about that. Just like many things in life, you can do it really, you know, Forestry and forest management, you can do it very well, or you can do it very poorly. In Canada, we actually do it very, very well compared to every other country. Um, We could do a lot more active management to reduce that wildfire risk. Um, But in terms of the overall longevity and sustainability, we do do quite well. And so entrepreneurs should really try to do that, you know, take that wood first approach to carbon storage. There's other things that, you know, You, if you want to talk about broader decarbonization that, that entrepreneurs can do, um, you know, encouraging uh, offices where people can bike to the office, that obviously reduces transportation emissions. But because a lot of entrepreneurs are leaders in our society, I think it's about having that realistic conversation about mm. the role of forests and wood products in our society and their importance. We're not going to get away from them. Because the reality is, is if you're not using wood, you can't sit on electricity. So if you're not using wood for chairs, if you're not using wood for buildings, the alternatives essentially are steel, cement or plastic. And all of those are dramatically higher in carbon emissions than wood. Yeah. So we, let's not kid ourselves that we need to use materials. And Canada has a world class competitive advantage in our forest products and our forests. That we are really only touching the tip of in terms of what we could actually do and provide to the world. Mm, Okay.
0: Last question I have for Jamie. Uh, uh, Fascinating conversation. Uh, I've learned a heck of a lot uh, here to to tell you. Uh, But what are, you know, and you did kind of touch on it just before, but what are some of the other practical steps businesses can take to achieve a more sustainable practice in their operations?
1: So if you look at a a business and where their emissions are are coming from, if you're a commercial business, a lot of it has to do with your building, right? So this is about how you're heating your buildings. And if you wanna do something today without huge costs or anything, you can fuel switch. And and if you're in an urban area, really the way to do that is, is with wood pellets, it's uh, a more compact fuel. And we see this in, in urban areas in Europe. I mean, if they can do it, we can do it too. Yeah. Um, it, you know Disconnecting from the natural gas grid, that's what they're doing in other European, in European countries. If we want to decarbonize our buildings, we can't continue to use the, the, that same energy resource. I understand it's convenient. I understand historically it's been low cost, but if you're actually committed to decarbonization, you actually have to cut the cord. I mean, this is, you know, with the natural gas grid and to fuel switch to something sustainable. So that's that's number that's number one. Um, And that's where a lot of commercial building or that's where a lot of emissions for commercial uh, companies are from um, come from. And then, uh, you know, in terms of playing a role uh, in your in your community and really encouraging development of low carbon infrastructure, namely district energy systems. Um, and that's where you can connect multiple buildings to a central energy resource, and that benefits everybody because the operating costs are lower. Instead of having a furnace or boiler in your basement, you've got a heat exchanger. This is basically way less maintenance. Um, and so anytime you can do that as as you know, and that's a key thing that businesses can do. Industrially, if you're producing industrial products and you have uh, thermal energy demand, that's also something that uh, you can fuel switch to for biomass. And it's really the proven approach to decarbonize heavy and, just heavy and light industry.
0: All right, super. Thank you, Jamie, for joining us today. Uh, as I mentioned, fascinating conversation, lots of insight and, uh, and uh, information there for, for everyone. Thanks again well, for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Mario. I've, I've greatly enjoyed it, and I hope your listeners have gotten something out of it.
0: All right, super. That was Dr. Jamie Stephen, who is Managing Director of Torchlight Bioresources. I'm Mario Tanaguzzi. This has been Canada's Podcast. Thanks for joining us today.